0: And if you're not a friend of the program and this is your first time on the rodeo, then let me tell you this. You need to go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and smash subscribe today because the OSP show
1: is back. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello. Help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, dot Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
0: Hello, media consumers. Welcome to PressBox Final Edition. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. Our guest today is a regular on this show. She is the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the author of the recent memoir, Uphill. And she happened to be sitting a few seats away from me at WrestleMania 39. She is a writer and podcaster and former intercontinental champion, Jamel Hill. Thanks for coming on the Press Box. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. I remember there was one moment during a night of wrestling where Pat McAfee was in the wrestling ring and you and I locked eyes like our worlds are all collapsing in a very odd way at this moment
2: uh, yeah, it was um it, it was a little interesting to to see that up close. um I've known Pat over the years, and um he's got definitely i think one of the more versatile and interesting media careers out there, considering the variety of things that he's done, and it is able to do well to be frank um you know, like, I think he's great on game day. He's great in the wrestling ring, apparently, and uh, also has a, a a good podcast. So shout out to Pat, Ma- uh, Pat McAfee for sure. All
0: right, speaking of sports media, next week, according to a report from CNBC's Alex Sherman, layoffs are going to start at ESPN. There were a couple of rounds of ESPN layoffs before you left the company in 2018. What were those days like inside the building?
2: Uh, it was tough um, because uh, a lot of, People that I, you know, consider to be friends, some of them were part of the cuts, um, like Jane McManus, for example, she was a part of the cuts and, and Jane is somebody I consider to be a friend. And um, interestingly enough, I think those layoffs actually happened in 2017 and we had just gotten, Mike and I had just gotten the Sports Center show. So we were just starting and then the layoffs happened and we, um, we gave our colleagues a goodbye on air. That were laid off. And that was something John Skipper did not appreciate (laughs) us doing that, in part because we went too long. Um, He actually printed out exactly everything that we said. And I think in our minds, we thought it might have been three to five minutes and it was like 17 minutes (laughs) of us just telling our colleagues, hey, you did great work. We'll miss you. This and that, because it was such an elephant in the room. And we didn't want to treat our audience like they were stupid. But in retrospect, I'm not sure that was the wisest decision at the time.
0: Tell me if I'm wrong here, but I've always found the people in Bristol whose identities are most bound up in working for ESPN were often the people behind the scenes as much as the people on the air.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is that um, and this unfortunately happened to us is that uh, when those when word of those layoffs, um, you know, reached the public. It, then you see a public that doesn't understand not just how media works, but doesn't understand who's most affected by it, that they're like cheering for people to be fired. And I'm like, you know, the thing is, you you may not like me at all um, and you may have issues with my opinions or whatever, and that's fine. But realize if something happens to me, it's happening to everybody on my show. And in most cases, the on-air talent um. While, you know, it would be disappointing for anybody to lose their job, but in most cases they're going to be fine because they have contracts, they have, um, you know, the ability to be able to maybe secure another high profile paying job. Um, The impact is very different. It's the people who, uh, you know, some of the audio folks, producers, like people who work behind the scenes that get the most Um, who are the most impacted because they they don't have a cushion. They don't have a lot of cases, a a soft landing. And many of them, especially at ESPN, have been there for years because it's one of those places that's considered to be a destination job. And so when these layoffs come, um, the people that will probably primarily be affected are the people whose names you don't know. I'm sure, I mean, if the reports are accurate, there's going to be people that you do know that might be in the awkward position of either having to take a pay cut or they just might be let go entirely. Um, but those people who are let go entirely and they have on-air talent contracts, they're going to get all of their contracts more than likely, right? So it's just, uh, I think people need to understand like how this works and how this doesn't work for some of the people who will be impacted by these layoffs.
0: What have your friends and former colleagues over there been feeling the last few weeks?
2: You know, I, um, this is a little different because I think um, at least a, a good chunk of people that I know just got new deals, right? And so um, I think they'll be fine and I think they feel secure about, you know, where they are. Um, but, you know, I haven't gotten a sense from the people that I still know that they're really concerned. Um, I think there's some pro- on-air people that is. I think there's some producers who are definitely concerned about what this might mean for them that producers who have like been there a while. um, And, uh, you know, it's an unfortunate reality of our business. I mean, I've gone through sort of two different types of these things. One was the layoffs, as I mentioned, that I previously experienced at ESPN. And then of course, CNN Plus, which was the show, the network that never happened. And um, it's tough. It's always a tough time for everybody. And as I said, as, as much as you may not, agree with some of the opinions that on air people have, or you don't like their style, whatever the case may be, realize that, you know, these are people whose families and livelihoods are being deeply impacted by this.
0: In terms of programming, what's the biggest way ESPN has changed since you left five years ago?
2: Well, I think there's less of what I used to do. You know, um, now, granted, I know the last on air job I had with them was SportsCenter. SportsCenter is always going to be SportsCenter. It's always going to be the legacy brand, the jewel of the company in many respects. But, um, you know, First Take is now one of one where I was there during a time where they had a um, a lot of different opinion shows. And I know they still have PTI and the Round the Horn, both, again, legacy shows. But a show like His and Hers, I don't think would ever be made today um, or even Highly Questionable. You know, it just doesn't seem like that's the direction that they want to go in where they have like sort of opinion who are able to create conversation. And yeah, there are opinion elements to a lot of the shows. You know, NFL Live, there's certainly an opinion element to that and NBA Today. But it seems like specialty shows is is kind of, they leaned harder into those um, than when I was there. And now being sort of a a general opinionist, I think it would be difficult in today's climate at ESPN to find your footing there if that's the service that you provide. So that to me has been the biggest change is that, You know, a lot of the people that I worked with during that time, um, I don't know that they would have the same opportunities now that they did, you know, five or six years ago.
0: I think I could make a list of the things you don't miss about working at ESPN. What do you miss about working there?
2: Um, You know, there's a certain energy to doing live television, and that was one of the bigger changes that happened for my career once I left is that I was doing a lot more tape television because I realized uh the rest of the media universe doesn't all operate the way ESPN did. So I missed the energy um and even the chaoticness of doing live television. Um and you know, when I went to work for other outfits, because they're not in the same position of uh as ESPN from a production standpoint, you realize um you know, some of the amenities and some of the uh, capabilities that you you had at ESPN versus when I've gone to other places where that's not a thing. Like talking sports, I realized talking sports on other networks not named ESPN that don't have rights is really hard. (laughs) Okay, You're showing steel photos all the time. Like very difficult to do. Doable. People do it, obviously. But yeah, it's not as much fun when you don't have, uh, when you're not working for a company that has all the rights to all the sports. And so playing highlights is like literally not a thing. <laughs> so uh, so definitely miss that. And obviously the camaraderie, some of the relationships I've had, but uh, in some ways those are hard to, to, to say that I miss because I've maintained a lot of those relationships. I mean, we may not see each other as frequently as we used to because we were in the building, uh, but um, I've been happy that so many of, The people that I knew and were close to there, how they've been able to really find their footing and really, you know, become faces of the network. You know, looking at somebody like Mina Kimes, for example, Um, you know, and and when I left in 2018, uh, Mina was just starting to like really, really kind of find it. Um, And now she's like, you know, one of the faces of the network. So it's great when. I look at some of these um, faces who are friends, you know, Justin Tinsley, somebody else who is a friend of mine and seeing all the stuff, seeing him now on Around the Horn, and David Dennis and Monica McNutt. I met Monica when she was, I think she was doing in Arena stuff in DC. And now she's like everywhere. So I, that part gives me a lot of joy to see Monica and Malika Andrews and all these like younger, new, emerging faces become the mainstays at ESPN. So Uh, You know, I probably miss being able to up close and personal watch them develop. But, um, you know, there's not really much I miss about ESPN. It is, I realized how hard it was. Some of the things that I did there that I didn't realize in the moment were that hard. Like doing daily television five days a week is hard. And I didn't have an appreciation for how insane that is to do until I was able to get some distance. I was like, that was really crazy that I did daily TV for five straight years. What was I thinking?
0: (laughs) What do you tell people about life after ESPN?
2: Well, what I do tell them is that, listen, it's it's hard to put a price on freedom. And by that, I mean, you know, ESPN, like a lot of companies in that space, um, you know, they kind of consider themselves, all right, this is everything you want to do, you're doing here. And it can be very difficult because you get other opportunities to do stuff and, a lot of times, or at least a good bit of times, they, sh- they shut it down. And most companies are like that. So they're not certainly not unique in that fashion. But what I tell them is like, you know, yeah, I may have traded one job for 52 jobs. But when I want to do something, there's only one person I have to consult. And that is me. And so um, the freedom and the flexibility are just really priceless. I mean, for the first time in my entire professional year, professional career, which is, you know, knocking on three decades now, I actually got to pick where I wanted to live. And that's not a reality, typically in our business, because you have to go where the the work is. And so being able to pick somewhere where I wanted to live, you know, plant some roots and really say like, oh, I'm going to be here the next 10 years was not something was not an ability that I had ever in my career. I always was on the move and, and going where the work was. So what I would tell them is that um, the amount of freedom and autonomy you get sometimes creatively, it's it's just really hard to um it's really hard to put a number on that. And so the majority of people that I know, um, I'm struggling to think of somebody who isn't, but I think the majority of people that I know that left ESPN are very happy with what they decided to do afterwards
0: couple of media stories I want to ask you about. Jamel, you've been known to tweet from time to time. How do you feel about being on Twitter in the Elon Musk era?
2: I mean, I'm just never not sure really what to make of it. Um, there are definitely some things in my feed that did not used to be there before. People I don't follow. And it feels like, so, especially like the, the right wing accounts, that there's been a, an explosion of them and they're all showing up in my timeline. And I'm not really sure why because I don't follow them. And so it's like you're getting force-fed this diet of nonsense sometimes. So there there's one part of it, and then this whole threatening to take away the legacy blue checks or not. I'm like, I don't care that much about the blue check, so I'm never paying for it. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm not going to pay for a blue check if they take it away and somebody's people start impersonating me. Okay, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I think people are just trying to make the best of it, but it does go to show you that, um, you know, Twitter was always something that was always kind of unquantifiable. And I don't think it's any stretch to say that it's clear that the person who is now running Twitter didn't really have a full grasp of that. Like, it's not, you know, Twitter is a neighborhood, it's community, it's like all these things. And it's hard to put monetarily what that means. Um, And, you know, I think what he's Realizing, well, he probably already realized this, but I don't know if he cares. He doesn't have enough self awareness to know, to not know what he doesn't know. And I think it's showing up all the time. And considering how there are so many ways Twitter has been used for good, particularly, you know, when you have conversations with activists and they tell you, like, how much Twitter has really helped, you know, them in getting attention on certain issues, certain cases, different things like that. I mean, it, it's disappointing because their fear, and it's a real fear, is that that element element of it will go away. So, um, you know, with Twitter, I guess I look at it like, well, I guess uh, Twitter was here for a good time, not necessarily a long time. So we'll see where this this, uh, um, social media outlet is in another year.
0: Did you ever think about leaving for Mastodon or some other service?
2: I thought about leaving, period. Not just to, I didn't necessarily need to pick up anything else. Um, And I've had that same thought about, Facebook, too. Um, you know, the, uh, social media, it, in many ways, it has made the world smaller. But we also have to be careful in understanding that social media is not real life. I mean, it's real life, but not really. The majority of people are not on social media, right? But we think of it as being so massive. And I'm not saying that it isn't, but I still know plenty of people who are barely on social media. Or not on it at all, so all these things that feel so large to us who for those of us who are always consuming the platform, to a lot of people, they're really not and um so yeah, like i I don't you know, I know that especially as a writer, it's tough and and as a broadcaster, it's such a great way to get eyeballs on what you're doing, but uh I, I do constantly have this conversation with myself is like whether or not it's worth it. Um, and there are days where I feel better about that than than other days, and you know, probably my favorite times on Twitter is when there's a water cooler talk around a particular you know show, like right before uh we recorded this, I was watching Snowfall, which I'm totally obsessed with, and there's a whole conversation happening on Twitter about snowfall, and it's fun to feel like you're sitting down and watching. Uh, a show that everybody loves with thousands of friends. Um, so I think I will miss the community part of it if it all goes really, really astray more so than it is now. But I don't know. I I probably would have to guess. I don't know that I would miss it as much. Like I, Twitter specifically, I don't know that I would because you know I'm old enough to have remembered life before social media. So I, I think I'd be fine.
0: <laughs> In other media news, we thought we were going to have a big defamation trail this week. Fox News versus Dominion voting systems. It's going to be a Murdoch trial for media reporters. And then Dominion settled with Fox for $787 million. So where do you think that leaves us?
2: You know, it left me a little hollow. I mean, because I don't want to pretend or make the mistake in making it seem like every news outlet not named Fox is perfect. Everybody has a lot of issues, for sure. But I think what they've done to democracy and what they've done to journalism is so depraved that I want to see them get their comeuppance. And when Dominion decided to settle, it felt like that wasn't going to happen, even though I know there's more legal issues that Fox News will face. But I I, I kind of I think what they have done, Newsmax, all those copycats, what they have done to our business and to you know, again, our democracy is just really disgusting. So to me, they could have never paid enough money. Um, I get why Dominion settled. I wish they hadn't because, and especially because Fox doesn't have to apologize or really, other than writing a, a very large check. And I'm not trying to act as if that itself isn't a consequence, but I think the consequences they deserve, they aren't getting.
0: So the outcome of all this is us reading emails and texts from Tucker Carlson and Rupert Murdoch Did you learn anything new about Fox News?
2: No, because I've always considered them to be a phony. Not always, because there was a time when Fox News was actually sort of credible. Like there wasn't, they hadn't gone this far down their rabbit hole. But one thing I did learn, and uh, I'm not surprised by anything in those text messages. A very eye-opening moment for me happened, I believe this um, I believe this, this moment happened for me, uh, a very eye-opening moment for me was in 2016. It was, um, you know, Obama's last year in office. And um, Mike and I had got invited to the White House because they have these slew of ho- holiday parties. And, you know, people are all there enjoying themselves from different corners of, of media. There was a lot of Fox people there. And <laughs> what I found to be hilarious and to me, it was very much a window into what these people are doing. They were all in the receiving line to get their picture with President Obama. And the reason they were is because to them, like what they, they're performing for people. And they have no, like, if you're if you're a, like a straight up for real conservative and you've consistently been that way, I don't have any problem with you. I may not agree with you, but at least you're consistent and at least it's real. These people are literally peddling just this constant diet of nonsense and it's impacting how it how people think about the world and about um the society that we we live in and to know that behind closed doors they don't do any of this like all that stuff that they're regurgitating to people on tv like it's not real so they're like to me very highly paid actors and i have no respect for that whatsoever. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. All these Fox News personalities are in this line to shake hands with a man that they tear down on a nightly basis and are feeding their viewers a constant diet of why this man is everything wrong with the world and, and playing on lazy racial tropes. And here they are in line trying to shake the hand of Barack Obama like everybody else. Very eye-opening for me.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube.
0: How much have you allowed yourself to plug into the 2024 election?
2: Uh, a lot, because, you know, I think if you're really anybody in this country, but I, I think it's especially acute if you're uh, a Black woman, a person of color, is that I can't think of an election that I haven't voted in where I didn't feel like my existence was at stake. So I have to stay plugged in. Like, I don't have a choice to to you know, um, to unplug and to not think about it because there's very serious issues that are on the table that are impacting how we live. And that means a lot to me. And I'm not voting necessarily for myself. I'm voting for other people who don't have the platform that I have. Other people who, because of, you know, how our society is set up, there's a lot of people who feel like that they got 25 more important things to worry about when it comes to voting. And so I'm voting for those people. And, um, you know, so it's our crumbling democracy is something that I take extremely seriously. So I don't I don't have the option of not caring or being tired or being sick of the politics. Don't have that option. And I don't think the rest of us do either.
0: What do you make of the week Ron DeSantis has had?
2: Ron DeSantis, the slicker, um, more intellectual version of Donald Trump. I told people he was worse a long time ago and they, people didn't believe me. But, you know, what's happening in Florida, a place that I lived for seven years, a place I enjoyed living for seven years. Um, and to see the things that he's been able to do and put on the table get easily passed it has been, um, I hope people understand that that's a preview. He's providing a copycat model of what other states can follow that have, you know, Republican led leadership through and through the most interesting part to me of like just seeing his entire say last six months, not just like recently, but the stuff with Disney, which was I thought was one of the most excellent checkmates I've ever seen. I was like, huh, did he really think he was going to disturb the mouse? Did he actually think that they're like basically the largest employer in Florida? And it was such a stupid fight to pick because as he often does, he uses his position and authority as governor to politically bully people, to retaliate against people. And it's upsetting to me that because of the way the state is gerrymandered, because of the fact that, you know, let's be honest, they get a huge influx of people who aren't born in Florida. So there are people from other places. And I think that's also part of the reason why the political landscape is what it is. There also is a lot of wealth in Florida. And that mixture of events has allowed him to be in a position to basically destroy a lot of people, a lot of things that are good about the state. And it just seems to be just an apathy there that I don't understand. But I understand it in the larger context of where we are politically. It's not it, what will ultimately, I think, <laughs> sort of do us in, not to sound very you know, morbid because I don't necessarily mean in a, in a death way, but ultimately what will undo our entire democracy is the apathy. That's what we'll do it. It's usually it's not one big event that happens. It is death by a thousand paper cuts because somebody a lot of people aren't watching who's minding the store, And a lot of people not only don't understand how our government works. And I don't mean that in a way to to belittle them or demean them. But because they don't understand by the time these things happen, um, you know, that these laws are put in place, it's too late. The political machine has already worked. So I hope that people don't get overwhelmed by our next political cycle, particularly since it looks like we're going to get a rematch of 2020. And I hope they just stay engaged and informed because there's a lot of things that are truly detrimental to our country at stake now.
0: Last one for you, Jamel. You and I talked on the night after the 2020 election. So Joe Biden had won, but he hadn't won yet. And you talked a lot about the promises Biden and his campaign had made to Black voters who had supported him going way back to the South Carolina primary. So sitting here in 2023, how do you think those promises have been fulfilled?
2: You know, I think because there's this tendency for people to say, oh, he hasn't done anything for the Black community. I'm like, infrastructure bill very much will impact the Black community. We now have the first Black woman on the Supreme Court, uh, which was a campaign promise that he essentially made. Um, he's trying to get the student loan crisis figured out, but we know that's being blocked in in courts. So people, I think, um, who are on the left side of the aisle or or the Democratic side of the aisle, I get why they get so impatient. I understand it because they look at, you know, sort of conservatives and Republicans, and when they're in power, they wield that power mightily, and they don't really care what people think of them when they do it, and I think... There is this level of frustration within the Democratic Party where people feel like they're still attached to a political reality that does not exist. There is no working across the aisle because you can't, it's hard to work with people. I believe in the spirit of compromise and I understand that's what politics are. The problem is you can't compromise with people who are still saying things like, Joe Biden's not the president. Like, how, what's the compromise? Like, we don't have any common ground there because a basic fact you purport as a lie. So how, how are people supposed to work across the aisle when there's a, a very large, significant contingent of them who think that January 6th was okay? You can't work with that, right? And so I think what I would like to see going forward is that now that uh, the Democrats have whatever power they have, they need to use it in a way that they can correct some of the things that have happened. I had a great conversation with Representative Ayanna Presley about this. And it is true that at this point, I think Democrats are tasked with so much. That's not to say we should feel sorry for them, but they're not only tasked of moving the country in a more progressive direction, they're also tasked with reducing harm. Now, there are other areas that I will, I would love for Joe Biden to be more aggressive about, police reform being and criminal justice reform being at the top of my list um i don't think he's really he hasn't really done much in that area uh i know they had the george floyd policing act that never really came to fruition when it came to um you know really shoring up voting rights for people that never that has gone nowhere but i need i think we need to be very careful in placing the blame of why it hasn't gone anywhere and when you have the level of opposition that he's facing it can be tough to get things done. And I'm not you know, saying that that's the only excuse, but uh, I, I think especially if he he does get a second term, I'd like to see him behave that way. Like this is my last four years. I have to do something for my legacy that will make this count. And most importantly, will improve the quality of lives of the people who've had to overcome voter suppression, overcome a long laundry list of things just to put him there. And I hope that he understands you can't keep asking people to vote harder. You got to do something else that will get them there and feel like that you really are somebody that they can trust and believe in.
0: Jamel Hill, thanks for coming on The Press Box, as always.
2: Thank you. Appreciate you.
0: That is The Press Box. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic, as always, by Erica Cervantes. Before we go, a few weekend recommendations for you. Sean McCreish was on this podcast recently. He works for New York Magazine, writes about the media a lot. He's got a new piece out about Emma Tucker, who is the editor running the Wall Street Journal. And it's a really interesting piece because it is about Tucker's journey as much as anything through Murdoch World. And if you want a companion story to read as you're thinking about the Fox trial or the Fox Almost trial, highly recommend it. Really, really good story uh, as always from Sean. My other rec is an oldie but goodie. I've been trying to watch old media movies. That is media movies before 1976 in hopes that I can convince Sean Fantasy to come back and do one more power ranking with me because we gotta do the classics. And the one I popped into the DVD machine the other night was A Face in the Crowd, which features Andy Griffith. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything here as a radio host who grows into this Donald Trump slash Glenn Beck slash Tucker Carlson figure. It is often cited as a movie that was able to see into the future. Uh, I often think it's a better version of network, mainly because I understand how Andy Griffith became, (laughs) Andy Griffith's character in the movie, Loads of Roads, became this national phenomenon in a way I don't quite understand how the guy in network did. But it's also just a great movie, period. Uh, The Criterion print of it is magnificent. Anyway, if you're looking for a movie, a face in the crowd, my recommendation this week. All right, read, relax, revise your nut graphs. Let us meet back here Monday for more lukewarm takes about the media. Have a fantastic weekend.